You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning, church. We're awake today. Got our coffee in. Um, My name is Tamarcus Raglan. I am the young adult minister here at Citizens Church, um, and I am so glad uh, to be able to bring God's word and fellowship with you guys this morning. Um, last week, we concluded our belonging series, right? We've been teaching through the, the core values um, of our church. And as Jamin has expressed uh, back in August, whenever we are in between series, something that we're trying to make a pattern of doing is returning to the Psalms, right? And the hope there is that we would learn how to talk to God about things that are hard to talk to God about. Right, that we would learn how to be a people who practice dependence and who commune with God in prayer often. Whenever we return to the Psalms, we get to uh, see just a glimpse of the, the depth and the width of things that God has invited us uh, to communicate to him about. And there's just something very uh, sweet about that, right? Like if you think about the rest of the Bible, Right? Uh, we see God's sovereignty and his goodness, but from a human perspective, right, it is full of man's flaws. We see evidence of our fallenness. We see man right, get it wrong time and time again. When you think about the Psalms, it is 150 examples of men choosing the best thing. It's 150 examples of men getting it right even in their failures and even in their distress, turning and clinging to God and hoping in him. And we just want to be a people who do that. And so today we're going to be in Psalm 16. And over the next 30 minutes or so, we'll be answering the question, how to talk to God about my emptiness. That's the cute way we're going to put it on the website. But if I could tell you the way I feel it, Right, Psalm 16 for me is how to talk to God when I ain't got no more. With my bad English and all, right? When I don't have any more to give. When I'm in a a space where all of my resources have ran out. Psalm 16 is a a prayer to play when I I can just tell God, God, I don't have any more. Right? The, The irony this morning for me is that over the past couple weeks, I've felt very acquainted with that place. Um, this time of year for me has always, since my, my junior year of, of college, it's just been a time of, uh, been marked by loss, uh, just close friends and uh, family members during this season uh, that just, it sticks with me. And oftentimes, my spirit remembers and feels it before my mind is conscious of it. Um, but it just puts me in a place where, like, sometimes just at random, it just feels crushing. Um, And there's not something specific in the present to point to, but I know some of those things that have happened in the past, they just haven't healed fully quite yet, right? Some of you might know that place. And in this psalm, David, due to some imminent suffering, has found himself in a place of emptiness. While he doesn't specify the source of his emptiness, the tenor of the psalm reveals that He is in some sort of place of desperation. Dr. Tony Evans calls this kind of emptiness a spiritual crisis. He says, this is the moment when all of the power and control that you thought you had 
over life and circumstances just kind of falls apart, right? And you find yourself in a place where none of your resources um, are enough to handle it, right? You can't buy your way out of it, right? Your, your, your network and your net worth just aren't going to do it. Um, your educational background and your accolades and your titles, they just don't feel right. We just don't have a place outside um, of God anymore to go to. And the cause of this crisis might be brought about by something physical, but it is sunken down to a place so deep that only God can feel, and you are forced to put your bet on God. He's all you got. And in Psalm 16, David does just that. And what he wants to impress upon us, if we can put it in a sentence, is that there is a fullness with God that is foolishness to the flesh. When everything around looks like there's nothing to be glad about, right? There is a fullness with God that we can have with him that is foolishness to the flesh. And he does that in this psalm in two main movements, right? In the the first movement in verses one through six, we're going to look at a a petition that that he cries out to God, right? And we're going to see three places where he places his trust and relationship to God as he is dealing in this place of desperation. And then in the latter half in verses seven through 11, it starts to turn to praise, and he finds treasure there in the presence with God. And so in these two movements, David models and teaches for us how to commune with God when we're empty, and we find the heart of his petition in the first two verses. Let's look again at verses one and two. He says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Protect me, O God. Keep me, O God. For in you I take refuge. Verse 2. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. First thing David does, first place he puts his trust is he trusts in the right Lord. This is a cry of someone who is empty, right? Preserve me. You don't say that when you're feeling good and everything's okay, right? The call to be preserved points to that imminent crisis because otherwise I won't make it. And here's the thing, we all cry this cry. Like whether we use those words or not, this cry is something that we all do. When life exposes us and it afflicts us or life happens to us as it always does, we're all seeking preservation and good and refuge from somewhere, and the question before us is, where do you go? Right, whether you're empty and know, and know it, or you're blinded of your emptiness, right, all of us, when we find ourselves in this place in life, we have the same temptation. And that is rather we think we found preservation in something else, or we're looking for preservation and goodness and refuge somewhere, the temptation is always to find it somewhere other than God. And so instead of preserve me, O God, it might sound like, preserve me, O career, right? Preserve me, O vacation, O distraction. Preserve me, O comforts, O substance. Preserve me, O health. Preserve me, O relationship, right? And some of these things have their place when they're put in the right order, 
but none of them are meant to fill the kind of emptiness that only God can. Right? The way we, the way we ask this question in our recovery ministry here is, where do you go when you are irritable, restless, and discontent? Right? We all find ourselves in these places at some time, and we have to ask ourselves, where do we go to address it? So this is what Psalm 16 does. This is what David does in these verses, right? It's a prayer that we pray when we're empty, but it's also a prayer that we pray when we're full of vanity and need to be emptied. It is the prayer of the poor in spirit that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. And that means it's a prayer for everybody who belongs to the kingdom of God. So how do we do it? Look at verse 2. David says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. The confession from David's lips in the midst of his emptiness is that the Lord, Yahweh, is his Lord and his good. It's one thing for you to know he is the Lord. It's another thing for you to know him as your Lord. Just like it's one thing to know that he's good, it's another thing for you to claim him as your good. We see that with Peter in John chapter 6, right? Jesus is explaining to a crowd of disciples how they might find life, right? And he starts saying strange things like, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, right? There, there'll be no life for you. And that sounds really good when you know what he's talking about, but when you don't, it's kind of weird. So the crowd's like, Jesus, I don't know what to do with that. Like, I don't know. I, life sounds great. Eating flesh and drinking blood sounds different. And right, so some of them, they start to walk away because they're confused, right? And so Jesus turns to his 12 and he's like, do you guys want to leave too? And Peter responds, he says, Lord, where should we go? Where can we go? You, we, you have the words of eternal life. And we have come to know that you are the chosen one of God. There is nowhere else to go. It's Paul's cry when God has afflicted him with a thorn in his side, right? And he prays that it will be removed. And rather than removal, he finds revelation. And he realizes that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. It's Jesus crying out in the Garden of Gethsemane, if there's any other way, Lord, would you take this cup from me? But if not, may your will be done. Right? There's something to be said about choosing God as your Lord, even in the midst of the trouble and trusting that he, he has something to do that. So maybe for us, the beginning of a prayer like this looks like honestly stating where we are with God. If we're going to walk away and practice this today, it starts by being honest about our emptiness, right? God, I'm empty. Not, not going somewhere else, but going to him and just letting him know that I'm empty. I can't take anymore. I'm at a loss of words. I don't know what to do here. Maybe it's a confession that we have gone to other things to be filled. And we're just saying, God, I know that there is no life in this thing, and I've turned to it, and I've tried to seek feeling there, but I know it only comes in you, Lord. Would you forgive me, and would you feel me? Or maybe we don't have all of those words, right? Maybe 
Maybe we don't know how to put it all together. And like the song we just sang, we just say, Lord, I need you. Help me, God. Some of the simplest and most spiritually rich words we could say to him. But no matter what, we have to be honest with ourselves and with God. And we first have to submit to him and allow him to be the Lord of our life and cling to him as our good. So the first thing David does is he trusts the right Lord. After that, right, after we have talked to God, then we can turn um, and he finds community. As we'll see in verses 3 and 4, there is a kind of community to cling to and a kind of community to be avoided. Look at verse 3. He says, as the saints, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. But the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Here David models what it looks like to trust the right community. As he prays and declares to God and himself that those who are of highest of esteem to them are those who also choose Yahweh as their Lord. This is why the first point is so important, right? A good litmus test to see if we have placed our hope and surrendered to the right Lord is that we desire to hear from people who are speaking words that come from him. If we're not careful, though, we'll settle for other voices, right? But why? Like you just read and said that those who go after other gods, right, they multiply their sorrows. And where I'm at right now, I don't need multiplied sorrows. But why do we do that, right? Because oftentimes those voices offer a kind of relief that's immediate and we get some sense of control over the situation, but it's thin and it's fleeting, right? It's, it's in those moments when you don't have it anymore and you don't know what to do and you're irritated and restless and discontent that if we're not careful, we begin to compare ourselves and our lives to those around us who seems like it's doing a lot better with them, right? Specifically, sometimes those who even aren't following after God, like I've been doing all these things to, to follow him and this is what I get and those guys don't even acknowledge God and look at where they are. And not only do we begin to envy them, but we can start to believe them and listen to them. And maybe, right, if I just try to be more like them in this situation, maybe if I just try some of the things that they're doing, that I can feel some of that satisfaction that I see them posting on their timeline all the time, some of that joy that they have. And you know as good as I do that that's, that's not real. That doesn't really feel, right? Here's something that I notice in my own life in this regard, right, and why it's, again, so important to turn to God first, is that when I'm in a place where I am empty and I am looking to be filled and I'm not responding to it in the best way, it is very often that I too quickly run to community and too quickly leave my closet, right? Like, it is... It is a good thing to be surrounded by community, but we shouldn't be running a community before we first run to our Heavenly Father and told him what's going on. We have to spend way more time in our closet first before we turn to others around us, right? And this, 
that is just a testament of me wanting control and thinking that I know better and I know where my comfort's going to come from and I know the voices that I need to hear from and the reality is I don't, right? And what I need is to humble myself before the Lord and allow him to direct me and where I should go. David, right, he doesn't envy the kind of community that chases after other gods because he knows that for those who do not belong to God, the good, whatever good they have in this world is all they have and even that they'll lose. That's not a, that's not a feeling that lasts forever, right? The best case scenario is that their sorrows multiply, he says. But instead, David says the saints in the land, those who are chosen and set apart for God, who call on him as their Lord, right? He says that those are the ones that I admire, right? He says that they are the excellent ones. Some translations may say the majestic ones, right? And what he's trying to depict is that those who belong to the family of God, right, they are of highest esteem and of highest rank in my heart. This, this word highlights that those, right, who are part of his, his family, right, these are the voices that David wants to hear from. Not the ungodly, right, not his timeline, not from those who don't fear God, but from those who choose God first. This is why it's so important for us here at Citizens Church to be a people of presence, right, those who dwell and abide with God and abide with people who also abide with God. It is among the people of God that we get to experience the embodied presence of the Spirit of God, right? We all flourish in this kind of community, surrounded by people who are filled with and who are obedient to the Spirit of God. And because they love God more than they love us, they actually can love us well, right, with grace and with love and with truth, and we all need that, especially when we're empty. So what might it look like for us to pray, right, this prayer, right? It looks like asking God to speak to us through his people, right? After spending time in our closet, right, asking him to give us discernment concerning who we should be bearing our issues and our suffering with, right, that he would guide us to voices that would be speaking back to us his words rather than just their own. That's who we need when we're empty. Third, verses five and six, right? So after he's trusted in the right Lord, he's trusted in the right community, now he trusts in the right story. Just read the verses and I'll explain what I mean by that, right? In verse five he says, the Lord is my chosen portion In my cup, you hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, and indeed I have a beautiful inheritance. So if in verses 1 and 2, David is submitting himself to God, in verses 5 and 6, he is remembering what kind of God he is. Right? He has just rejected the company of those who run after other gods. And he says that Yahweh is my chosen portion in my cup, and he holds my lot. Right, someone's portion or their cup and even their lot can be a, a picture to describe right, their, their daily sustenance, right? what they need for life, their food, literal place, their clothing. But it also can point to 
their fate, right, or their destiny. And so in this, these verses, right, it's this beautiful, poetic way of David trying to say, right, God is my daily bread. Right? He gives me everything that I need, and he also holds my life in his hands. Right? He is my sustainer, and he's also sovereign. Right? Notice what David is doing. He is situating himself in the midst of his suffering in the story of God's sovereignty. Right? That yields a very different result than when we um, think about our suffering in the context that the world gives us. Right? Like when we hold on to another story in this place, there's only two ways that we can go. Right? Either our suffering and our pain becomes our masters, right? or the world tells us that our suffering and pain really doesn't matter. Right? Like it's not that big of a deal. And both of those just don't do it for healing. Right? Like when it's our, when it's our master, right? when, when your suffering is the whole story and it gets the last word, when all of your past hurts and your present pains is the only thing that gets to direct who you are and shape who you are, that only leads us down a path of hopelessness and despair. Right? There's, there's no light at the end of that tunnel. But on the other side, right, if, our, if our pain, if we're just told that our pain doesn't really matter, right, it's just not, it's not that big. Right? We, just, we just need to look on the bright side, just think positive, don't think about it. Or, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me, right? Like, just these, these things that we tell ourselves to try to push the pain down and ignore it rather than actually face it. And what this does is it doesn't actually bring about healing. It just causes the pain to react in our lives in different ways. And so it can't be master, but it also can't matter. Like, that, that can't be the answer. And maybe... To that point, right, some of you, right, as you've heard this psalm read and heard the topic being about how to talk to God in my emptiness, you may have thought, this is a beautiful psalm, but these verses, they just feel tone deaf. Like, how can, how can somebody who's in a place of emptiness and desperation say these words, right? How can David at one point say that he's in seek, seeking out refuge and needs preservation and then now say, I have this beautiful inheritance, the thing is, is you'd be right, this, this would be very tone deaf if he was just talking about earthly things. But David has an eye to eternity when he speaks about this. Right, like the lines right, are, are in reference to these boundary markers of property, but the real estate in mind is not on earth but in heaven. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, right, he places his finger on this idea that we find in these verses, and he just kind of zooms in and just gives us uh, a bigger look and a clearer picture of it. It's a little bit lengthy. It'll be on the screen behind me, but it's worth the read. He says, be sure that the ins and outs of your individuality are not a mystery to him, and one day they will no longer be a mystery to you. The mold in which a key is made would be a strange thing if you had never seen a key. And the key itself, a strange thing if you had never seen a lock. Your soul has a curious shape. This part's so good. It is a hollow made to fit a particular swelling in the infinite contours 
of the divine substance or a key to unlock one of the doors in the house with many mansions. For it is not humanity in the abstract that is to be saved, but you, you the individual reader, John Stubbs or Janet Smith, blessed and fortunate creature, your eyes shall behold him and not another's. All that you are, sins apart, is destined, if you will let God have his good way, to utter satisfaction. This is David's realization. Not a quick fix on this side of eternity, but the reality that his eternity is fixed. Right? That he is, he is looking at his pain and his suffering, and he's like, this isn't all to my story. There is, there is more to what God is doing in my life than just this. Right now, much of your story may be a mystery to you, right? You may be thinking, I don't know how or why God would allow this to happen. I can't make sense of what he's doing in the present. But what we can be sure of, what David knew, is that one day when the dust clears, there is a beautiful inheritance that awaits us. And this realization allows him both, right, to honor his pain, right? He doesn't have to say that it doesn't matter and tuck it away. But it also doesn't make the pain the master of his story. God is, right? And that is a very unique place to hold it, right? I want to put a pin there. We're going to come back to it at the end. But for now, right, how do we pray this Type of prayer to God. This looks like us remembering and reciting to God his story and his character, right? Reminding yourself that Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. It's remembering Paul's words to the Romans that the end of the story for those who are called according to the purposes of God, right? The end of the story is only good and glory, It's remembering that God draws near to the brokenhearted. It's remembering that he heard the cries of Ishmael and Hagar when they were in the wilderness with nowhere to go. That he touches the leper. Right? That he stepped out of glory and he died so that one day we might spend our eternity with him. Remember that in God's story, your pain really does matter to him. It's not insignificant. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't just tell us to push it down. It matters, but it's not master. He is, and he holds your lot, and he is working it together in a divine mystery for your good. That's David's petition, right? He trusts the Lord. He trusts the right Lord. He trusts the right community, and he trusts the right story, and then at this point, there is this interesting turn, right? He went from, right, petitioning to now blessing and praise. Having walked us through the petition, David is going to bless the Lord for all the things that he has found to be true under Yahweh's lordship. And the first thing that David blesses God for is the stability that he's found in his presence. Look at verses 7 and 8. 
He says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me, and because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. So at the beginning, David was seeking refuge, and he cried out to God, and now he's found refuge, and he blesses God. He entrusted himself to, God, to God's will, and this is what he finds, right? He says that God, in verse 7, said he gives me counsel. Right? He says that when I was empty and surrounded by lies and susceptible to believing them, right, you spoke truth to me. Right? He received his counsel from God. I don't know about you, but when I'm in a place of emptiness, my internal record tends to be like this sounding gong of criticism uh, and lies that are trying to jumble me up and point me in different directions. But what David confesses about God, right, is when he goes to him in his emptiness, right, he helps him to make sense of all the voices, right, that he, he counsels him. He tells him what's true. He reminds him of the true story that he submitted himself to. He reminds us what's true about himself, about our life, about us. And then over time, we start to gain perspective. And that takes effect in how we begin to process our life and our place in it. Look at verse 7. Right, the other part of verse 7, he says, The counsel allows my heart to instruct me in the night. Right, in the night when I'm alone and it's quiet, and there's no more distractions, and it's just me and the voices and dialogue in my head and the Lord. Right, the literal word there for heart is kidney. And what they meant to point to in Hebrew was, right, the innermost part of yourself. He says, in that inwardmost place, David confesses that what I had heard from God and the words that, that came from God are now echoing back out. And, and the words that were at one point just his words have now become my words. Right, it is a picture of David hiding God's word in his heart. And now when I, when I think through my circumstance in my life, I can't help but just hear a, a scripture pop up and remind me of what's true. Right, when the lies start to creep in, there's just a, a sweet word from God that creeps through and it reminds me and instructs me and corrects me when I'm tempted to go astray. I don't just know what he says, but I believe what he says. How does that happen for David? In verse 8, he says, I have put him continually before me. I have submitted myself to his covering for refuge. I have surrounded myself with the family of God who was praying on my behalf and speaking truth over me. I am remembering and rehearsing the true story about my life and where it's heading to myself Right? I have just put it all on God. My bet is on him. I'm not hedging my bet. There's no other place that I'm thinking about going. I'm not trying to weigh my options. I've put it all on God. He is my portion. He's my good. He holds my lot. I have nothing apart from him. This is what David has done. And even as I look around the room, I see faces, and I know that this is what many of you in our midst have done. I know stories of people who have put it all on God, and God has met you in that place. 
and the thing isn't fixed, and the pain doesn't always go away right in the moment. But just like with David, God has taken hold of your right hand in the midst of the pain, and along the way, he grounds you and he grants you stability. And this is a testament to the rest of us. This is where stability comes from. It doesn't just come because the problems go away. It comes because you have the right person holding your right hand. What does this stability look like for David? First, what it's not, right, it's not the absence of suffering. David doesn't say, now that everything's all better, I won't be shaken. It's what the disciples got wrong in the Gospels, right? They were panicking because the severe storm was coming, and Jesus was taking a nap, and they walked down to the, to the bottom of the boat. You remember what they tell Jesus? Do you even care? Like, how could you be asleep, and we're almost about to die? Right? They were afraid of the power of the storm, even though they were in the presence of Jesus. Right? And that's what it looks like to be shaken. Right? We, we look to the wrong things. However, what the disciples missed, David got right. He was stable because he continually dwelled in the presence of God, and God's presence for him overshadowed the power of the storm. That was the source of the stability. There's a stability that God grants in the midst of the circumstance when we dwell on him and his power rather than the character of the circumstance that we find ourselves in. So the first thing that he finds in God's presence is stability. The second thing is safety. Look at verse 9 and 10. He says, therefore, right, since you hold my right hand, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices, and my flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. The second grace David receives is safety. Therefore, in verse 9, links back to the previous power that he just talked about. He says, because you hold my right hand, I will not be shaken, and that causes my whole being to rejoice because I know who guards my soul, right? I can, I can trust you with my whole being because I know that you protect the most valuable and the most vulnerable part of my being, right? God is in the business of restoring your whole person, right? Your, your mental health matters to God. Your physical health matters to God. Your spiritual well-being matters to God. And we can be assured in the midst of trial that we are safe because even the most, the greatest threat that could possibly come against us is not more powerful than God, namely death, right? What does this safety look, right, look like, right? David says, I dwell secure because you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or allow me to see corruption. The kind of safety we have when we belong to God comes from the assurance that when it's all said and done, his will always concludes with life for us. Not just when it feels like death, but even when it actually is death. This is the kind of assurance that the Hebrew boys had before Nebuchadnezzar when he said, hey, you can throw us in the lake of fire, the pit of fire, but God will rescue us. And even if he doesn't, we still won't bow down to you. Right? 
It's like they had faith in God that even if their physical circumstances literally meant death, that God was still better. He was still stronger, right? This is what Abraham knew when he was asked to sacrifice Isaac, right? The promised son, the son who was said that through him he would become the father of many nations. And as he was being obedient, God stepped in and provided a ram in the bush, right? And we know that that was a beautiful story. And Hebrews eleven nineteen gives us a background scoop on what was going on in Abraham's brain, right? In verse 19, it says that Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. You see that. Like it wasn't that they were fearless of all kinds of trouble except for death. It included death because they knew that God was the God of the living and the dead, and he was able even to raise a man back up to life. And these are Old Testament examples. How much more, friends, should we on the other side of the cross who knows that Jesus is raised from the dead trust and know that he can do the same for us that we can consider our troubles and with our tears and our mourning still be able to rejoice, not because we are free from trouble, but because we know that even the worst kind of trouble, even that one day will be thrown into the lake of fire and it will be no more. And that one day there will just be life, life with Christ under his lordship and not even death can touch us. Right, so we can have faith that even now, right, that the pain, right, though it may not leave, there's another in the fire who resides with us. And even if that leads unto death for us, that our God has the power to bring us back to life. And he will do that. He has promised that. And if that is true, then the words of Paul in Romans is even more true. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall it be tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? He says, no, for in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our loved, beloved. You are safe. He has you. So he's given us stability. There's safety. And then the last thing David says, he finds as he submits himself to God, is satisfaction. Verse 11, he says, You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You make known to me, is one word in Hebrew, yada, right? It means to know. And it's an experiential kind of knowledge, right? It's the kind of knowledge that you gain firsthand, from having gone through it. As my mama would say, right, just keep on living, right? You just keep living, and as you live and as the experiences come and as you walk with God, he teaches you things as you go, right? 
You may not get it right now because you haven't gone through it yet or you're in the midst of it, but if you just keep on living, then it starts to come, right? He says that you, you are making known to me, right, as we go by the path of life. And the idea is that over a duration of a lifetime, as David walks with God, he is revealing the path of life to David, the path of life, right? The preservation that David asked for at the beginning, right? He's like, I'm I'm experiencing firsthand day after day that you're preserving me. Yesterday, I thought I wasn't going to make it, and then I woke up. And then I thought that I wasn't going to be able to go any further, and then you took me a little further. And then I thought that it was all over at this point. And then I woke up again. And, and time after time after time, and I look back, and what I see over time is that you've been preserving me. And I trust that you will continue to preserve. Right? We, we have to see this thing that David's doing, right? For some, right, healing from past pain that you thought or hoped that you'd never get over or that you thought you'd be over with by now, right? Sometimes we can be impatient with ourselves. Some of you may be in the midst of pain or on a road where it feels like there's just no light at the end of the tunnel and it feels impossibly long. And the tendency that we have to be there is to think that God is as impatient with our trial as we are. Like there's a clock on it, right? Like you should be, you should be good by now. Like it's that was a few months ago. That was a few years ago. That was, right? And God just isn't processing it like that. He is patient, and he is a steady presence who is walking with us along the road to fullness of life. He is showing us the path of life. He's in it for the long haul, <laughs> and he's never short on supply of grace or kindness or compassion because that's just who he is. He honors our pain and our suffering, and it's not with thin, quick fixes that he carries us, right? But instead, he's a slow and steady presence, a life-giving presence to those who are in need. Then, right, this is what the refugee of verse 1 found in the presence of God. He says that there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Remember back in verse 6, I told you to put a pin there, right? If verse 1 colors the whole psalm, verse 11 holds it together. And there's this link between verse 6 and verse 11, right? In verse 6, when he says, right, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, that too is one word. And it's the same word here that he says, there are pleasures forevermore. So you could almost reread verse 6 and say, the lines have fallen for me in places of pleasure. And where is that pleasure? Where are those pleasant places? Paul, I mean, David has told us that it is in God's right hand, right? The lines have fallen for me in a place that is inscribed in the hand of God. And I am limited to his sovereignty and to his plan for me and to the good and to the suffering and all the things that is meant to come from my life, and I am limited there, but what I find in the limits of God's hand is unlimited power, unlimited satisfaction, unlimited grace and mercy and goodness, and he says, that is a good place for me to be. Even in the midst of trial, the fact that I am found in the hands of God is enough for me. 
And this is why that's good news for us, right? Like it's, it's the kind of satisfaction that isn't just getting all the things that we want, right? Like have you ever been like really thirsty? And not just like kind of like almost probably dehydrated thirsty, where it doesn't even like feel like thirst, like it feels like you're hungry or something. And so you're like, man, maybe if I just like eat something, right? I got a headache. You know, you start eating and you're like, ah, that's not really doing it. And then you're like, well, let me like drink some like orange juice or some coffee or something. And normally coffee does it. Like 99.9% of the time, it's like coffee does it. And it's like right now, coffee's not doing it. So then you're like, okay, like not food, not coffee. And then you're like, let me, maybe I just need to drink some water, right? And you start drinking water and you take a sip and then you're like, what? And then you just like gulp it down. And it's like, it's like all of a sudden you just like feel your body like, fall back into function, right? And it was just like, I was thirsty. Right, like there was this gap, and it was like, I don't, I don't know what needs to fill it. And I tried to put some other things there, and that didn't work, and I put something else there, and that didn't work, and then I, I found the right thing that needed to fill the gap, and all of a sudden it was like, it just started to fall into place. Like it was, that thing was made to fill the gap. It's like that, that is the kind of satisfaction that we find in God, right? Like that there's this, this gap that's in every human heart. And it's like we're all trying to fill it with stuff, and it just doesn't work. And the reason there's satisfaction in the presence of God is because we were made to be in the presence of God. That is what the soul longs for. Sometimes we think the soul is longing for this relationship or for more things or for this thing. And you know, that's how it's kind of anticipating because it's such a deep longing and we're trying to find anything to satiate it. And the reality is what it needs more than anything else in this world is to be found in the presence of God. And the refugee that was crying out for preservation in verse 1 gave himself to the presence of God. And as he sat with God, and wrestled with God in the midst of his suffering and in the midst of the trial, what he started to realize is at some point, God is actually preserving me and he's being enough for me and he's being everything that I needed when I didn't know what I needed and somehow I'm satisfied. The fix isn't gonna come maybe to the other side of eternity, right? Maybe there's no change in the diagnosis, but in this place, where I find myself, there's a satisfaction, right? There's a fullness in God that I found that's foolishness to the flesh. Can we pray this prayer today, right? Like, might this be uh, the cry of our hearts that we'd be a people, right, who, who turn to God first, right? That we could echo the words of uh, St. Augustine when he said, right, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Let's pray. God, we confess to you that we are poor and needy. Lord God, that we are without resources to fill the gap that only the divine substance can fill. Lord God, uh, you are sovereignly leading us in a way that leads to life. And along the way, you are teaching us what it means to depend on you.
But when I think about my own life and my tendency to turn to other things or just even the moments where I'm put in spiritual crises, Lord God, I can look back and I can see that what you taught me in that place that carried me even when life started to, to feel better, is I can, I can look back at those moments and I'm like, man, I, I really learned that how dependent I am on you. That that's the thing. Resting in your presence. Abiding with you. That's what my heart longs for. That's what it needs. It doesn't need more stuff. It doesn't need another vacation. It doesn't need you know, anything else but you. Lord God, will we spend that time in your presence? Lord God, may we look at this psalm and see how to, to cry out to you in our emptiness and how to receive from your presence as we do so. Father, we love you. Would you be with us today? Would you guide us in what is true? Would you heal, Father? Would you comfort? Would you satisfy today? Hearts in the room that are going through it, Lord God, would you just reveal that you're the cup? You're the portion. You hold the lot. Your plans are to prosper and to lead to pleasant places where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Lord, we love you. You're our Lord. It's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.